Hello my lovelies, my name is Chantelle and I'm the host over at Lady Justice True Crime. Lady Justice is a weekly podcast that covers fascinating cases both past and present from around the UK and Ireland. Some of them are strange, many are unbelievable, all of them are completely unique and are someone's story. So please come join me on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. If you enjoy listening to this show, please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcatcher. True Consequences is fully listener-supported. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences. If you want to keep up with all my updates, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at trueconsequencespod and on Twitter at trueconspod. following episode discusses themes which may be difficult for some listeners. It deals with issues of domestic violence, rape, child abuse, neglect, and child murder. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. To report child abuse or suspected child abuse, call 1-855-333-SAFE or dial pound SAFE from a mobile device. That's pound, S-A-F-E, from your mobile device. Today I want to talk about winning and losing. These two ideas are a huge part of our society. They're important in sports, gambling, even business. But these ideas also drive the actions and behaviors of our legal system and its people. I used to think that our legal system was infallible and just. You see, I've struggled reconciling my naivete and belief in the system with what's happened with Jacob's case. And then, seeing cases come through the state like Victoria Martins, Baby Brianna, Omari Varela, and countless others, my hope that I had in the justice system really started to erode. And any hope that I had of seeing Jacob's killer brought to justice virtually evaporated. Watching these victims and their families struggle with injustice was infuriating for me. But back to my original point, it seems that it is common practice for prosecutors to assess whether a case is winnable or not in their mind. And based on their gut feeling, they have the prerogative to choose whether to prosecute or not. And this, in my opinion, is wrong, especially as it pertains to children and child abuse. There should be no question as to whether a child abuse case goes to trial. And while I don't mean to discount the knowledge and experience of state prosecutors, I have to question how they can justify not trying to prosecute each case fairly. Jacob's case never stood a chance, and for me, it's really starting to feel hopeless. So I'm constantly asking myself how someone could get away with doing something so horrendous and evil. How is it okay for him to continue living his life with impunity? What kind of message does that send to would-be child killers and abusers? And do the state and its people really believe that this is justice? Because I don't. What can we do to change things? Is there anything that can be done? Look. I know there's no easy answer to any of these questions, 
but I feel strongly that we should at least try to fix this broken system. Shouldn't we attempt to make it so that the people who prey on the innocent and vulnerable pay for what they do? I think so. In part two of Jacob's story, you heard from Edna, a former prosecutor with the state of New Mexico. She had many opinions about this case and whether it was provable or not. Edna felt strongly that the case was provable. She also gave me some reassurance and validated what my mom and I had been through. Edna asked to meet again so she could give me an update on what she found as she looked into this case further. Some of this information was difficult for me to hear and you will hear me get emotional. I decided to not edit that out because it's real. The pain and frustration that you hear in my voice is something that many New Mexicans experience as they face the problems with our justice system every day. Today I am joined again by Lydia and Edna in discussing justice in New Mexico and Jacob's case. At one point in the conversation, Edna asks me what justice looks like for my mom and me. And honestly, I don't really have an answer to that. What I do know is that it looks nothing like what we've experienced so far. I am Eric Carter-Landine, and this is True Consequences. Um, so I talked to my friend and she shared the file with another woman. Um, wow. And they both said they would have declined to prosecute. Really? Because from the injury from previously, there's no way to tell if the more recent injury exacerbated that. And that even if it didn't exacerbate it, that a jury would still probably believe that it did. And that because of that, he could say... Nobody knows who could have done this in this time frame. Who could have done it, caused an injury that would have exacerbated. But don't they have a confession from him? Yeah. Sure. But, I mean, child abuse cases don't typically plea out. They're the most trial-laden type of cases because... So even with this history of abuse, and even with the uncertainty as to who was responsible for the original injury, it's just not enough. It's not enough to convict, potentially. So I was I was actually pretty surprised by that. Each prosecutor has a different method of thinking about a case, right? There's been a very conservative swing, not politically conservative, but risk, risk mm-hmm. conservative, risk-averse position to say that we're not going to bring cases to trial unless we feel absolutely certain that we can win them. And in my mind, that's not a valid measure because I've won cases I thought I was going to lost and I've lost cases I thought I was going to win. So in my opinion, I've always said if I can, if I feel strong enough that I can make the argument that I can win, then I would go for it. And for me, that's still meeting that high mark of I think I can win, but I think that if other people don't think you can win, then maybe that would lower that confidence, I suppose, in a case. I've never tried a case involving a dead child, so I don't know what what that risk, I don't know what that thought process is to establish that risk. I know that for me, prosecuting domestic violence cases, I try try to bolster case prosecution by my 
understanding of the topic. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, child abuse prosecutors have to do the same thing. But, you know, we talked a lot last time about how people just don't want to believe that people do horrible things to kids. Mm-hmm. Like they do from their armchairs. You know, if they see something on television, they're quick to... Like, did you see the, the mom that was just arrested for mm-hmm. shaking her baby and... Yeah. And everybody in their armchair is like, hang the bit. But... Were that to actually go to trial, you know, juries are really Well, I guess weird. that's the, the frustrating thing is to hear, you know, I, I respect the experience your colleagues bring to the table, but it's it would be frustrating for the layperson to not understand why they why somebody wouldn't try, you know, try, yeah. to, try to prosecute. Yeah, I mean, I think that I've been thinking a lot about it and thinking about kind of what justice means to people and and what does what does it mean to you? And to your mom in this context and that and, and, and in listening to all your other episodes, it's it's clear to me that you're you understand that justice and justice are different things like mm-hmm. justice in the court of law is it's not just not always. Yeah, it's almost never just and that like what that even in the case where you do get justice in the courts, you, you don't. Mm-hmm. Or you, or it's not enough. It doesn't help. It doesn't change the landscape. It doesn't change the. It wouldn't bring Jacob back. Well, not more than that though. It doesn't change the certainty in your mind about what the facts are, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that in some ways that's good because you shouldn't let, for example, if a jury acquitted, convince that would not convince you that he oh, wasn't no, I guilty, would still believe he was right? Guilty. Yeah. So yeah. so in some ways, in terms of your process, that's really important to have that certainty. But at the same time, when you're so certain that he did it and everybody else is so certain he did it, and even the person I spoke with was like, yes, it's clear to me that he did it. That's a different, it's a different thing. And intuition tells us a lot about what the, what we believe the truth is and what the truth in fact is. But for juries, that's not enough. No, that's the case, yeah. Particularly when they're acting in as groupthink, which which they have to. Juries are required to think as a group and to come to a decision unanimously. And that being said, I still think you should write a letter to the AG's office. I still I think you should do everything that you want to do because, like I said, I've taken cases that I thought. Well, I'm not going to win this case, but I'm also not going to dismiss it. And I've won. Every person has the, the, every prosecutor has the discretion to decide what they're going to decide. I haven't had the chance to look at the statute of limitations because the person I talked to and I got kind of hung up on, because I was, I was shocked by what she said. Um, And so I haven't even talked about that. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to lead you on. I felt like leading you on if I didn't. Do you think there's something to be said about a portion of like disillusionment with, um, you know, career prosecutors who stay in the system, looking at these cases day in day out for twenty plus years, and it really becomes like a real clinical analysis. Inevitably, a portion of the humanity is taken Absolutely. out, right? And it's for their own self protection, their own protection of their souls and their psyches, and. But in the off chance, you know, and it, you get the stereotypical fresh out of law school baby DA, the ADA who wants to try to make a difference, they may look at this case and say, hey, this is worth a shot. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying is that every person has a different skill set that they bring to the table. And I can think of a, I remember a sexual assault case that was being prosecuted when I was at the DA's office and the criminal complaint that was written by the police officer based on what the victim told him made it appear, the visual that it brought in your mind was of a, of a very physical sexual assault. So not so much that the victim fought back, but that the whole interaction was very physical because, you know, she described him in her words, forcing her to have sex with him and that he, um, you know, was kind of tossing her around. And when we charged the guy, he and his lawyer sent us, he said, well, I videotaped it on my phone. I recorded it on my phone and it's consensual. So he sent it to us and the DA who was prosecuting it was a man. And he watched the video and he said, Edna, we have huge problems with this case. Like I watched the video. It looks consensual to me. And I said, wow, that's really very, what you're describing to me is very different from the criminal complaint. So I watched the video and what I saw was absolutely not consensual because so much of what the woman described was um, nonverbal cues about what she was wanting, about whether or not she was enjoying the exchange. She wasn't engaging. He was just tossing her around like a rag doll. Like yeah, and she, would, she was kind of curling up and she was very closed off. And she wasn't saying no, but she was, you know, turning her head to the side and burying her head in the pillow. And so when I pointed that out to the prosecutor, he, one, had never even, it never even occurred to him that 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 was what was happening. And number two, he just didn't have the skill set of articulating to anyone, much less a jury, what he was seeing. So even though he understood and validated what I was saying and said, holy shit, you're right. He just, as a man, had never been in that kind of a position and just didn't have the ability to convey that. So he would have he would have lost that jury trial, right? right? And in his mind, he might have said, well, this is a horrible case because he maybe understands his lack of skill or he doesn't and just isn't able to believe what's being said. But I would have been able to try that case, right? you know, and, and conveyed that to the jury through the questioning of the witnesses and stuff. And none of that stuff happens in a vacuum, but I do think that prosecutors can get stuck in that vacuum of win, lose all or nothing, perfect victim, perfect case versus non-perfect victim, non-perfect case. And that's frustrating. It's sick. It's frustrating to hear that because I'm probably going to get emotional. Um, There's just like always, there's always hope. Mm -hmm. And I know that like locking him away is not going to make any of this better or make any of this okay or even change anything for anybody else other than my mom and I. But just the hope that there would be some humanity in the system Mm -hmm. and some understanding that what happened was completely fucked up and he should not be able to continue doing what he's done to Mm -hmm. anybody else. And I know it's not perfect and I know that things like, I get it, but it's just really fucking frustrating. So I guess I want to follow that down with you because I think that I, 
I think that I can offer you maybe, maybe some, a perspective that might alleviate some of that for you. So first of all, how would, how would a guilty outcome for him, how, how would him being found guilty, what would that realistically change for you and your mom? Well, um, there would also be a sense of emotional, like relief to know that he wasn't out there doing what he was doing. So what you're telling me though, the relief is predicated on him going to jail, right? And one of the things that we know in New Mexico is that even if you're arrested, even if you're convicted, there are very few crimes that carry mandatory jail time. So when we were talking last week or a couple, whenever that was about um, like murder, for example, Mm -hmm. even if you're convicted of first degree murder, you still have the ability to parole after 35 years. So if you go in at 18, you're going to be paroled in 33 years. That's in terms of homicides. That's the only count of murder that carries mandatory jail time. So if I get convicted of second degree murder, the sentencing range is zero years to 15. So if I have no criminal record, And for whatever reason, my attorney was able to convince the court that there were mitigating circumstances. I could conceivably get probation. And do you know how long our probation periods are in New Mexico? 18 months? Five years. Maximum five years. Okay. So, yes, child abuse resulting in death carries a mandatory sentence if it's convicted of the highest charge. But if he were to get convicted of you know, child abuse negligently caused, that's only three years. And the chances of him going to jail over that are pretty slim. And he sure wouldn't sit in jail pending trial. So what I'm saying to you is, is that you're never going to feel that relief until he's dead. Yeah, that's fucking bullshit. Like all of that that you just told me, and I'm not attacking you. No, I know. Is fucking bullshit mm-hmm. that that's like the state we live in, and that's how they handle these things. Like that fucking needs to change. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You could fucking kill a nine month old baby, and just be like, oh well, nine month old babies die all the fucking time. I mean, baby Brianna's mother is right. out of jail. Right. Baby and Gonzalez is out of jail. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, that makes my blood boil. Yeah. I think that it's really important to to think about justice in terms of what you and your mom really need in order to heal well, and to think about yeah. how much... I do think that him getting a day in court, even if it doesn't result in jail time, is also enough because he needs to be... He needs to know that like he didn't get away with it. Even if he doesn't pay in jail. Even if it doesn't result in a conviction and maybe that would be worse for him because then he would feel like he got away with it again. I don't fucking know. It's well, so complicated. In it's my so mind. complicated. And like one of the things that I talk with domestic violence victims about a lot is how are you going to feel if we go to court and we lose? Mm-hmm. Is this person going to feel more emboldened by the fact right. that they got an acquittal or are they going to learn something from it? And it's, I have to say 50, 50. I mean, you know, I know that guys I've prosecuted who have been acquitted then run around and are like, go fuck yourself. Nobody believes you. Mm-hmm. And and how is... Because for me, that's not my risk, right? Yeah. I just am like, well, I lost another case. And it definitely doesn't feel good to me because I'm competitive. 
but it's not my life and I'm not the one who has to see this person. I mean, maybe I should talk to your mom about getting an order of protection against him. She does. I didn't see it. It, I have a copy of it. I don't know if it expired or not. Well. I think it was a forever one. Would you be able to see it in in a court? Yeah, I would be able to see it. She did have one against him. I didn't see that. Hmm. As part of the divorce? Mm Mm-hmm. He used to, like, you probably heard that. He used to come to my window and be like, I'm going to fucking kill you every night when I was, like, nine. So, like, during that whole process, she got the... I didn't see it, so maybe we should talk about that approach, too. Okay. Um, Because if he's still doing it, then that's not okay. I mean, I think that, like, the other thing that struck me, too, Eric, is that I feel like you're already doing all this really amazing stuff to manage the complexity and to manage the grief and to manage to suspend your own disbelief, right? And, like, because to me... What ultimately matters the most is, like, how do you and your family prevent this from, like, taking you guys down generationally, which we also talked about last time. Um, To me, the real win is there because you could secure a conviction against him and never do that work, right? And think that, that the conviction was sufficient when it's not. I mean, I... I have a, I had a double homicide that I prosecuted and, um, the homicide victims were an 18 year old, um, just diagnosed as autistic young man and his aunt. So his dad's sister and the homicide happened in the home of his mother. So his mother and the sister-in-law to the dead woman and and that case was horrendous and had so many different layers to it. This is the guy that I was telling you who, I think I told you who, there's been all this speculation that his mother was killed by David Parker Ray because mm-hmm. she was found right. in the in Elephant Butte. Right, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, that case was super crazy for a variety of reasons. But the the father to the boy, so the mother of the boy is still a very good friend of mine, and she's really done quite well given the circumstances that the homicide occurred in her home. And Mm -hmm. it was to her son, her, um, her sister-in-law, her her then 16 year old daughter had found the bodies and, and like the, the, the mom, the sister, the other sister, the three of them are doing really pretty well. The father, Not well at all. And I sent that guy to prison for the rest of his life. And that was all that the dad wanted. But then when it came down to it, it just didn't, it hasn't given him what he wanted it to give him. And I don't like seeing people stuck there either. Yeah. I mean, if I had to choose, it it feels petty, but, and I know it's not, but it just feels petty, but that's what I would choose. Is it a too far of a stretch to say that even if you were to be acquitted or found, I mean, that is like some aspect of finality? I, I think just just having that, act, just having some action, mm. any kind of action, rather than inaction, rather than, because it's, it's that feeling of 
being forgotten, mm. being ignored. Mm -hmm. That is the worst. Wouldn't you agree, though, that you are taking action? I am. And that helps me. It does. Mm -hmm. It does help me. Absolutely. Is it this element of having somebody else other than people who are supposed to be sympathetic to you because we're your friends and family? Having somebody that's completely not tied to you or him or your mom have, a, have an opinion about the matter? Because I think for a lot of victims, that's always an important component to have somebody other than themselves or other than the people that are supposed yeah, to support I them. Think it would it would be uh, because after a while, you start to think that you're you're crazy and and like I talked about that last time we we talked, and you start to second guess everything, and you start to wonder, you know, did this is this really as bad as I'm. If I remember it, is this really as bad as I thought it was? Um, because nobody else seems to fucking care, right? Except for people who are close to me. So maybe I'm the fucking crazy one. Maybe I'm the one that has the problem. Maybe I should be okay with somebody beating the fuck out of my mom every goddamn day of my life and having to sleep with a knife under my pillow at eight years old. Mm -hmm. Like maybe, maybe I should be okay with that. Maybe I should just be like, that's Great. Yeah. Well, it's a Keep... typical survivor response to doubt your memories and doubt, like, the impact it had. But it's also, like, I, I totally get that because it's also, like, wait a minute. You're telling me that you just heard everything I told you and you're still sitting here like nothing is wrong? Like, how does that, that doesn't, that doesn't compute. And I, honestly, I think that that's part of, like, what juries they have a certain vision in their mind of what you as a victim is supposed to look like. And if you don't fit their vision, like a thousand percent, they're like, well, then there's no way then, then you are, then it isn't real. Then you are, um, exaggerating or you are making it worse. And you know, the other thing that people do, and I hate telling victims this, but is if you walk into a courtroom acting as though you are punitive in any way, shape or form acting as though you want this person to go to jail, you're fucked. Mm -hmm. Like, you are fucked. You're never going to have well, any like credibility. Right yeah. Because they're like, oh, well, he just wants him to go to jail. It's like and it's like, well, of course I want him to go to jail. Yeah. It's kind of the point of this whole thing. That's that kind of the point. Right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, don't, I think that's part of it. I mean, I guess I guess the, the first part of it for me is, is really the, the justice that you just explained to me is not what I would consider to be justice. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe that's, you know, I mean, I think still we should still write the letter and we should still, and if that goes nowhere, then I will fucking go to the media. Like, I don't give a fuck. Um, and I will blast this shit everywhere. Well, and he I, can't really sue you for defamation. And I'll start releasing fucking documents. You should. And, and I'll start talking to more unsolved you know, unprosecuted murder victims' families and really painting the picture of what the fuck is wrong here because there's a lot fucking wrong here. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot wrong here for a long time. And... But, know. like, I think, too, that, again, this is a much... I'm sorry, go on. No, 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 no. Go no, on. no, you need to keep talking. Well, I just... I'm fired up now. Mm -hmm. I'm really mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I want to say thank you because you have... You've educated me, and I appreciate that. I'm just heartbroken. 
I don't know if I'll ever not be heartbroken. Probably won't. <clears throat> so. You know, grief is something that we carry with us all the time and it never goes away. It just changes. And, yeah. you know, even in the best of circumstances, grief is haunting and horrible. And then the worst of circumstances, the unanswered questions just compound. And, you know, it doesn't matter. In some cases, it doesn't even matter what the answer is because getting an answer mitigates one piece, but it doesn't, it doesn't mitigate the whole, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, like one of the things I was thinking when I was listening to your mom and you talk about what Jacob was like was I thought, well, what, what an amazing, what amazing people who were actually paying attention enough to their, to this little baby to get a sense of the personality (laughs) because like, I thought, well, that's a really wonderful tribute. Even in that, you know, these small pieces of humanity, these small pieces of recognition that, you know, that we are connected. How's your mom doing? Um, I think she's a lot like me and probably more intensely so. She really appreciated listening to you talk about, you know, validating I think that was a lot for both of us just hearing the validation that this is this really happened this is it's fucked up and all that um and I think just having the hope of you know maybe if we write a letter that maybe that would do something Uh, like so much of this energy that I have towards this is about her as well like maybe more than it is about me just because the toll that this took on her. Mm-hmm. It nearly destroyed her. So I think that's a lot of why I'm so persistent. You know, sometimes I think that the best gift we can give our parents is to be a salve. For them, when we look at their lives and we see that what they've been through shaped us, but that they still did their best. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a huge gift, Eric, that you're giving her. And you're teaching that for your son. Yeah. That being an usher for them, sort of to a place of peacefulness. And that's really hard to do, particularly if we're mad at our parents for shit that they did to us, you know? Yeah. You're like, fuck you, I don't want to have any sympathy for you, or I don't care why you did this, but, like, now that I'm a parent, I just think every day, like, I'm doing the best I can, and I hope that someday you will forgive me, because I'm fucking shit up, too. <laughs> at the heart of all of this, Eric, all you have is that, Right? But it's not nothing. <laughs> it's everything, yeah. right? It's like it's like all of our. I always just see it as like all of our co- connectedness that allows you to create this space for that, and like when you create that space for your mom, yeah. 
you're create you're helping other people see that space and to learn about that space and to say, gosh, maybe I want to create that space. And like, that's so important. And it's so not that guy's right. Like he doesn't get to fucking own that at all. And like, fuck him and like, go fuck yourself. But like, you get to have that. Yeah, and I get to end it. Yeah. Like, it's over. It's not happening. He's never had. He's never had to deal with anything like that. Mm-hmm. And he fucking never will. Mm-hmm. If it kills me. Mm-hmm. And, like, those are the gifts, I think, that this little person named Jacob gives you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be really clear about what my friend told me, which was she did not say that what you were alleged to have done that led to the initial brain surgery is true. Right. And that that's why the case, in her opinion, is difficult to win. It's that the injury that the first time and the injury that he did the second time too much time is in between to say what else might have contributed right. to the death. And that's, I think, an important distinction. I appreciate that. I didn't take it that way, really. It was more of, where the fuck were the people <laughs> saying, don't fucking hit this kid. Somebody's hitting this fucking kid. Someone needs to do something. Even if they took him away from my mom. Like, somebody should have done fucking something. Yeah, was CYFD involved? Yes. It, from the first From the first from incident. before the first incident, because there was, uh, the neighbor called CYFD because she heard Jacob screaming, and she heard a bunch of noise, and she thought somebody was hurting him. And so there was an active investigation prior to the first injury. You know, all those questions are are totally valid. I think something to prepare yourself and prepare your mom for is that inevitably somebody may turn those questions towards her, right? Yeah. Um, sure. It's inevitable. Moms always get blamed. Right. They always get blamed, no Mom, matter she what. She was blamed. Yeah. A lot. Like the most, re- the four-year-old boy whose mom was working and the friend was watching him and everyone's like, this awful mom, how dare she go and try I to saw, earn a I living? I read yeah. a lot of those and I... It took everything in me to not go off on those people. I just kind of left it alone. But I, I, I but you know what? No one's going to ever blame my mom as much as she has. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's probably true. Nobody ever will. Yeah. Or say all the horrible, say horrible things any worse than what she's already said to herself. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the truth, too, is that the, the other truth to that is that we do not support women and mothers in a way that allows them to parent, to maximize the best possible parenting environment, right? So that we don't have to leave our children with our boyfriends or our, like, because even leaving your children potentially with your, the parent, the other parent of that child is problematic, right? So like, right. So like, how do we support women and children in a way that, that, that minimizes that exposure, but that also maximizes 
the ability of a of a new mom or a new dad to say i this is really hard and i want to scream at my child all the time and like so what does that mean do we does that mean we take them away you know i mean i've i've had clients come through legal aid that have nine kids because the abuser just keeps raping them and so all the kids are like 10 months apart boom 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 and she can't even get housing because she has too many kids. And she can't even get child support for all of those kids because child support maxes out at six kids. So was it just the two of you? Like once after Jake, well, because your mom stayed with what's his name for a couple of years, right? Yeah. And then she met, so I have a half sister. She met his, her dad and I was 11 when she was born. So why do you, how do you think that you've become so functional because you're describing to me like some pretty some understandably dysfunctional people but i mean it sounds like your mom has a hard time your sister i wouldn't say that i'm 100 percent functional i definitely still have are you kidding me well yeah i mean on the surface at all i inter i internalize a lot of stuff um i I'm determined. I've always been tenacious. When's your birthday? November 20th. Oh, so sometimes you're on Thanksgiving. No. Yeah, you're early like in... Like once every blue moon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've always been very tenacious and determined. Um, I think that what motivates me to keep trying is knowing that I have the ability to make a better life for myself and for my son. And for my mom, um, I think that drives me. So on some level, it probably looks like function, but it probably is a little bit of dysfunction because I'm so driven about things that, um, you know, I have high blood pressure and all these other problems now because of it. Um, but <laughs> I think a couple things happened, but my grandmother gave me some advice when I was probably like nine. And I, I think I was kind of going into a dark, Place. And I did, I did attempt suicide a couple times mm-hmm. uh, in my adolescence. And she, she said something along the lines of, you have to make a decision right now about what direction your life is going to go in. And you're the only one that can make that decision. I can't make it for you. Your mom can't make it for you. Everything that happened was really bad. It was. But you can decide to let that overtake you and drag you down into the darkness. Or you can go another way. Mm-hmm. And you can try to become better than that. And try to make your life better than that. But you have to make that decision. And that stuck with me. And that, I think, drove me a lot. I did therapy for a while, uh, for a long time. I probably could still do some more. We all could. Um, <clears throat> I think that helps. Um, but, like, I think that, like, you're you're buying into this idea that, like, and I think everybody buys into this idea that <clears throat> rather than <clears throat> embracing the fact that you're fucking ridiculously resilient, you say... I do okay in spite of how dysfunctional I am. 
Instead of being like, I'm really resilient, but I've had some bad shit happen. I do feel resilient. I do feel, <laughs> I do feel strong. I do feel like a fucking badass because like I can sit here and have a conversation with people. But I also know like the emotional turmoil that's inside of me constantly. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel like everything's okay. Everything <laughs> looks okay. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like everything's okay. Yeah. But like everything is okay. But see, I have a lot of PTSD as probably you would expect. All that is just churning inside of me constantly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't go away. So when I say I'm dysfunctional, yeah, I function in the world. Yeah, I can hold a career. Yeah, I'm not strung out on drugs. But there's still all of this shit inside of me. But I think, too, that, like, that's still resiliency, right? Yeah. You know, and, and like, you know, my therapist has always talked to me about, like, first consciousness and third consciousness, mm-hmm. right? And that, like, first consciousness is just, like, punching somebody when they make you mad, right? <laughs> and, like, third consciousness is being like, oh, I really want to punch you. Yeah. Right? And, like... The feelings are the same. Yeah, they're still there. It's just what you choose to... To do with it. How you make decisions based on it. And that resiliency comes... And success and healing doesn't come in making those feelings go away. It comes with... Decisions. Decisions and, like, how you choose to interact with the people around you. And, like... And so that, to me, is what is resilient about you, right? It's not that you... You're no, I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think any of us ever get rid of those feelings. Like I'm 47 and I still view myself the same way I did when I was six, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like <laughs> I talk too much. My boobs are big, even though my boobs weren't big when I was six, but like somehow that's like, like yeah, I'm just like a boob, a boob. I'm a giant boob. Like I'm a literal boob. I'm a figurative boob. Like I talk too much. I'm weird. I snort. Like I still see myself that way, you know? And it doesn't matter how much therapy I've gone to to like think that I'm not that person. I still think that I'm that person. I just, sometimes I don't care that I'm that person. Yeah. And sometimes I don't let that person drive the bus. Yeah. And well, yeah, and I do I do see that. And I I'm grateful for the fact that I didn't end up, you know, <clears throat> worse. But I think also the other part of it is I had a lot of love and support around me. Um and that you know, that comes from like Lydia's family. And my friend Emma. Yeah. Like, is it weird for you to hear him say that about your family? No, no. And that was, that's something, a a commonality that a lot of kids in Socorro grew up with. In terms of your family? No, a lot of kids in Socorro had very damaged childhoods. I think there was that camaraderie of, okay. Latchkey kids. Okay. All right. (laughs) We're, we're not alone. We're all in this together. Um, So like Hannah. Hannah's your sister, and then Emma is your friend. Mm-hmm. They all, like, embraced me and welcomed me hmm. and essentially became my family. Sure. And we all were like, this is all fucked up. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, we were all willing to point that out and be like, no, this is fucked up. Those, like, those people are still... You family. People are still... <laughs> family. Are still family. They're still close to me. Like, I don't know if that will ever change. Even... Even if we don't talk for five years, we still come together and still, like, nothing ever happened. Like, time has not passed. 
we're still the same people. We still love each other. That's how I feel. So mm-hmm. I think that that helps save me too because, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing I like about your podcast is that you really – it's sort of like why I fell in love with Breaking Bad because yeah. I think that they – like they, the producers and Vince Gilligan and stuff, fell in love with New Mexico. They got it. They got it. Like yeah. it's so fucked up, but they also really got it. Yeah. And that's so – I feel about my home state. Thanks again for listening to True Consequences. Follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. True Consequences is hosted, written, and produced by me, your host, Eric Carter Landine. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico.